Well, I've got a simple question for you at the outset. What's your address? Better not have senior moments with that one when you go to a doctor's office or somewhere and birth date, but that your address, um, your neighborhood. What flashes uh, before your mind with regard to the neighborhood in which you live? Uh, whether you like it or not is not the issue, but you, you know it. You've got a feel for it. Well, my question is then, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him and him alone for your salvation, do you know your kind of world address? What kind of world are we living in? Well, I want to hurry to that and ask it, answer it, having asked it. We're in Romans in the 12th chapter. Now, a word to those who may not have been with us a couple of weeks ago when we started on this, got into the threshold, you notice something a little out of the ordinary. We're right here at the, uh, well, in the middle of the book. I mean, what happened to chapters 1 to 11? Oh, I would savor the thought of being able to go through 1 through 11, but I thought we needed to go to 12 and following for our immediate needs here which uh, should be obvious to most of us that I think these chapters, and especially these opening verses, are so, so important, very important. And what we're seeing is that little hinge at the beginning of chapter 12, you know it well. Therefore, therefore, it's a hinge word. It's an inference. Something has gone before. Let me just fly over it. This book began on a gloomy note, really, in the first chapter, two chapters, three chapters. We are a wreck. We are a mess, internally and externally. We're not basically good people. We are people in need of some serious work within and without. And we're all sinners. And then Romans rolls on to tell us that God is provided in the Lord Jesus Christ that remedy for this condition, for this disease of sin. And then in that remedy that he has provided, there is a way in which God has provided for us, in which having come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior of our lives, there is a way in which we are to live, to think, to go about our daily hopes and expectations and dealing with pain and suffering. Oh, and there's that wonderful great eight, Romans 8. But we fly by it, fly over it. Romans 9 and 10 and 11. Oh, many have just come to those and just stumbled, unfortunately, because that, those chapters tell us that there is a problem of unbelief. Why is it God rules in, with infinite wisdom and love and mercy and justice, and then we come to the problem of unbelief as it was magnified in that those people, Israel, the covenant people, God had sent his Messiah to, and he came into his own, and his own received him not. Romans 10, 9, 10, 11 answered that. 
And then we come, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, unfathomable his ways, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again, for from him, through him, and to him are all things forever. Amen. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. We got there. That's where we are. Now let's, let's work with it just a bit. This matter of conformity and nonconformity, it is on the one hand, it's a, it's a massive requirement to not be conformed. And to be told that in conformity is where we should go, but that's not all. We're called to holiness. We're in the middle of that in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Lord willing, next week we'll see what's the way through this nonconformity, and it's be transformed in the renewing of your mind in verse 2. We'll have to have a special look at that statement. So here it is, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, serves a seed plot for everything that comes out through the rest of the book. And <clears throat> this nonconformity. Now, we're coming up close to the scripture reading, but you'll just have to, I just want you to have your hearing aid ready and tuned up for it. But I want to call your attention to this fact. that I announced that we were looking at these verses as uh, first of the year verses as sometimes uh, resolution for living. Let's resolve, and that's what we're told to do. Present, that's, that is, that's a command. So it's time at the beginning of a year, I think it's appropriate that we think of ways, how do I reset myself? How do I recommit myself, as it were, and own this matter of presenting my body as a living sacrifice? So we're told with something of a kind of a paradox, dying yet we live. <laughs> That's a strange connection. Dying yet we live. That's what comes up here. So the issue in Romans 12, 2, where we are now, is transformation of the mind. What Paul has said at the end of verse 1, he said it's reasonable. Did you get that? It's reasonable. Look at all the mercies that God has poured out upon us. All of that work in Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, setting us apart for him, forgiving us of our sin, giving us new life, being born again, regeneration, new desires, new aspirations, life changes, mercies, mercies, mercies. And then we're called now at this point to how do we achieve that? How is it going to happen? You know, this thing of living in the kind of world in which we live, this is not just a New Testament factor. It comes up in the Old Testament. I was just faced with it the other day in reading one of the, the stories. I don't have time to go into the story, but it's where Jacob's come into the land and his sons take it upon themselves to wipe out a whole city. And they just do terrible things. And they protecting their own, their, their daughters uh, or their sisters' uh, dignity and, and getting revenge. So there are two things that are mixed together there. First of all, they had an awareness that they were not to be like the people around them. But at the other, on the other hand, they resorted to measures to distinguish themselves that were, was completely wrong. So what that story said, 
listen to Leviticus 18 and verse 3. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not walk in their statutes. Now listen to this, 2 Kings 17 and verse 5. They despise, now this is in hindsight, the other was in foresight, this text. They despised, they, Israel, his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And this followed the nations, the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And that's the story of the Old Testament of Israel's experience. Don't copy your neighbors, those nations, idolatrous to the core, evil everywhere. Don't go there. Don't do that. And you're going to be given this morning in the adult Sunday school class, uh, God is giving in the book of Exodus, that here are the standards by which you should live. All right, with that said, now... Here is the scripture reading. Follow these verses. Now, I want you to listen very carefully and pick up the tone. Pick up the driving point. These are in different places through the New Testament, but hear them well. You listening? Here they are. Galatians chapter 1, 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, un of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 1 John 5 and verse 5. Who 
is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John 17 and verse 14. I have given them your word. Our Lord is praying in his high priestly prayer. I have given them your word, his disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Hmm, you catch a flow through these passages? This is the kind of world in which we live. How do we therefore deal with this set of circumstances? What is it? Well, we have two Two statements, really, and everything's going to pivot around these two statements. It's a very short, just half a verse, but not even that much. Be not conformed to this world. So we have to do some work. First of all, we've got to know what the world is. We've had an introduction to it. And then, what does it mean to not be conformed? Let me give you some uh, thoughts you, wish, you may wish to put a Velcro them to your brain or write them down, but I think they're important. We're circling around these words, the world, and do not be conformed. As Christians, we must understand the kind of thinking, spiritual, moral, political world in which we live. You can say this. The world is this moral, in, the, in this moral and spiritual sense, is life as it is thought of and lived apart from God. Stay with me. It is an organized view of life. We would call this a worldview. It is a world that is governed by the devil and the forces of evil. It is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 8, it is being carnally minded, fleshly. Now, further, it's the way in which philosophers, universities, politicians, news pundits, you name them, the way they think, and by and large, with some exceptions, they don't have understanding of what I have just said about the world. Well, we have various terms we use to describe this way of thought of the world. We, as Christians, according to the scriptures. Well, we've taken handles on it like humanism, secularism, rationalism, and so on. The secularist, the secularist, which is, uh, we, uh, we have a tsunami of secularism that has come in. Now, not all secularism is bad and evil, but more on that as we go along. The secularists know nothing about this. Statesmen don't understand this, nor does the legal system. If you don't just get just a little bit uneasy and disturbed with what you hear on nightly news or see or however you get it, uh, well, back to that later. We as Christians look at life and its problems in a unique way. Do you know that about yourself? We can wrongly expect also, and here's something which must be warned of, we can expect non-Christians to understand it. Now, some church historians have pointed out the fact that uh, our Puritan forebears didn't fully get this when they suddenly wanted to kind of Christianize 
the civilization with laws, Sabbath laws and such, uh, blue laws, some of us around to remember when um, this metropolis of Hapeville, Georgia was one of the last in the area to do away with its blue laws. And you say, blue laws? What are they? Well, these were those, those laws that everything was shut down on Sunday. On the, uh, some call it the Sabbath. Nothing was open, and it was a law. Uh, that may sound, well, what planet was that? It's the one you're living on. That's the way it was. The devil and evil are exercising power over this world, controlling politics. politics. Now, historians, for those of you who love history, uh, you should um, you watch and read. You know that there are those who want to blame the Kaiser for World War One, or want to blame Hitler or Mussolini, and want to zero in on these uh, seemingly these individuals who were kind of anomalies. They were out of step with the flow of the goodness of the human race. Not at all. No, but the historians want to seek to blame Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao, Satan. Putin, Xi, Jinping, and so on. That's the way the world kind of tries to put the pieces of it together and thinks that, why well, we even have a movement. We have a movement called progressivism. Progressive. It's, it's really regressive. It's not progressive in any sense. But that's the way the world thinks. Now, what are we to do with these factors? I want to give you several preliminary statements, and then I'm going to open it up further. Don't love it. Be mindful of it. Be wary of it. Use it, but don't love it. 1 Corinthians 7.31. And what Jesus says in his prayer in John 17.15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. All right, I'm circling around. I told you there would be some alteration if you're trying to take notes, but stay, stay on. What we have to do right at the outset in dealing with this word world and what I have just said about it, that it, the world doesn't get it. Now, this is not to be a point of pride for us Christians. That we get it. We know what we're doing. Well, we'll we can unpack that later. But... Here's what we have to be careful of. So a couple of initial warnings with regard to the world. And, and of course, this command to not be conformed. There's the danger of withdrawing from the world and pulling back even from rational and informed biblical thought about the world. You, we mustn't think that we're the only rational people on the planet. No. Obscurantism that we want to just uh, cut ourselves off and become anti-cultural. That's not it. What we'll see, it's counter-cultural, not anti-cultural. There's the danger of isolationism. Isolationism's been tried. Well, once the, the, the Angles and the Saxons, not them, but the, the Jutes, the barbarians, uh, when they came in and took Rome and it fell, and then civilization, Western civilization, as they knew it at that time, began to come apart because Roman rule disintegrated. Well, what came in to step in the gap, fill the vacuum, was monasticism. 
We'll go and build, I've walked through the ruins, Beth and I have, many a ruin of an old monastery. Imagine what it would have been like. It was a city within itself, behind its own walls. Well, that was an attempt to deal with the world because if the world is gone to hell in a handbasket, then we've got to come in and we've got to hold things together. So, and there are modern versions of that, isolationism. And there is that tendency among Christians today, but we can't go there today on that danger. And then there is the danger of legalism. Well, what we'll do is just create a structure. It says, no, do not be conformed to this world. So the word for world there, by the way, is not the word that's used most other places, cosmos, the orderly arrangement of things, cosmos world. It's the word ionum, age. Don't be conformed to the spirit of the age. It's the way it thinks, the way it interprets life. Well, unfortunately, the Christian community, it didn't just happen in, well, some of our lifetimes, but it's happened before, illegalism. That is, we're trying to construct some artificial standards by which we can measure whether we are conforming to the world. I'll say a few things here that will probably be, well, be like the blue laws statement I made. You will say, what are you talking about? Do you mean it was that way? By the way, it does show in a kind of a reverse way how far we've come. The pendulum is shoom, way in the other direction. But the, in, in legalism is a massive subject. But let's, let me try to just give you the skinny of it. It's, it's actually, it's it's worldliness in its disguise, though, as piety and righteousness. So it's a little bit elusive because on the surface it can seem like, yes, that's right. Shouldn't go there, shouldn't do that, shouldn't say this. It's afflicted the church from the very beginning. And it makes externals, it makes things a matter of externals, traditionalism. Such things as movies, makeup, dancing, theater, opera, various forms of Sunday observance, hair, jewelry, clothing. Some of you grew up in a culture and an atmosphere like that, and it was very real, very, well, sometimes it takes a while to get your mind right about those things and how to handle it. Now, with that said, Let's come back, and you can pick me up, uh, follow along if you're, if you're doing so with the, what you have in front of you. It says, don't be conformed to this world. Just a couple of little grammatical notations here. One is, he's using here a present imperative. And that gives the point, or gives the uh, direction of stop being. It's kind of like there's something that's continuing and that it must be discontinued. Stop being conformed to this world. Now, why would he put it that way? Well, of course, we're all dealing with our affection for the world in its, uh, in its wrong thinking in some way or another, but to, to make note of that, stop being conformed to this world. It's a process. You don't just have a church service or an altar call and you're done with it and you've got it. It's a lifelong thing because the world has a way of coming out and redressing itself, presenting the old thought of unbelief and coming out in supposedly new thought. And then you will, as I've already said, it uh, with regard to conform, I've spoken to the word uh, the world, meaning it's the age in which we live, 
the zeitgeist, I think is the way the Germans put it, the spirit of the age. But this word conforms, and interesting, it's the word, our word scheme comes from it. Schematizo is the word. It's a, actually a, a compound word, which means to shape with. Um, it's interesting to go to various uh, paraphrases, translations, see how they have handled it. One of the more famous is the one that J.B. Phillips did in his uh, uh, paraphrase in the New Testament. Stop being pressed into the world's mold. And that's caught on with a lot of people. Don't be squeezed into the mold of the world and the way it thinks, and the way it functions. Now, with that in mind, let's... Uh, Let's see what, a little further, and let's look at this matter of worldliness, and let's get a definition of it, and I'm going to just take you in a flyover of 1 John 2, 15 through 17, because that's where we're told not to love this world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. All right, let's, let's handle that for just a bit. Worldliness is all thinking that's contrary to the, to the teaching of the Bible. It is the unbelief. It is the unbelief operating at the present time through the institutions, literature, the media, conversation, and any other means of communication. It's simply a man-centered or human-centered, if you will, way of thinking. God is not in the picture. It is all thought, opinions, values aspirations, goals, untouched by the word of God. It's thinking devoid of divine wisdom. Now the Christian then is called to be countercultural, to move against it, like the proverbial salmon going upstream away from the current. We go upstream away from the current of the world. So it's the sum total of all that is hostile to God and his purposes in the here and now. If we get that, I've tried to say it four or five different ways and nail it down. It's a systematic way of looking at things. We can put it this way. If you, to the degree that you are governed in your thinking by what the world wants, you are conforming to this world. I'm conforming to it. Now, it's not as easy, therefore, to get it as we might think. What do you think? Well, I got a good mind. I know what's going on. So I don't, I can't, I don't do this, I don't do that. See, that was, that's what can be just a, a bit deceitful because we want to measure it that way. But let's go further with it. Now, we'll just have to be brief on this notation, this attention given to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. All right, he says, love not the world. Interesting that he drafts on in that place in 1 John in chapter 2. He's spoken of the old men and the young men, and you've known, the, you've known the Father, and you've overcome the world. And then he says, all right, love not the world, or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The lust of the flesh. What is the lust of the flesh? It's what we crave. It's what we want. So we have the world, in a sense, in our old nature that still resides within us. Okay, that should be really putting us on some alert, high alert. So that is, it's not merely an external thing. That the flesh, that which we crave, it's egocentric, it's exploitive, it's selfish. It's our appetites, it's our appetites which have gone beyond the boundaries of God's righteous rules, his laws. And it's that we're out of order 
we have a disordered soul life. That's what we contend with. That's the world, so I have to deal with it. I have a fight on my hands. A craving for power, craving for control, craving for attention, craving for sexual relationships that are outside of God's bounds for us. It could be a craving for food, a craving for entertainment. So you see what you have, the lust of the flesh. There can be things that may be legitimate in the creation order that God has placed there, but we want to take them and we want to go beyond the boundaries. Then he says the lust of the eyes. The eye sets itself, sets values on the things that it sees. That's the way the eye functions. What's bright and shiny? That kind of thing. It's basing what is good and right on appearance, outward judgment. It's living by sight rather than by faith. So it's what we admire. Be careful. Be careful. The desire to look good, which it seeks the desire to please God. Whoa, have any of us ever been or could we be plagued by that? Where my appearance or who I am is more important than how I'm pleasing God? And with uh, the pornography of the world, and it's bringing in billions of dollars through the year because of the eye gate. And now with enhanced TV and computers, it's amazing what you can even see on your little smartphone. You've got a screen right there with you at all times. So the threshold you see, the threshold is so much easier than it ever has been before. But we still are told to watch out for the lust of the eyes, what we would admire. And then the boastful pride of life. The boastful pride of life, it's making the outward the pursuit of life. Things, material things. Um, uh, I guess our first introduction to this probably began to hit us when we were, uh, we were young. Middle school, though somewhere in there when labels suddenly begin to be everything. And we begin to say, well, your mother sure dresses you in a funny way, and that would have been the ultimate insult. Those were seemingly kind of innocent things, but what we were coming into was peer pressure. The pressure to get certain things, to look a certain way, to buy certain kinds of clothes, or to drive a certain kind of car, to live in a certain house, names and labels and these kinds of things. So it's how we want to be admired. This is what he says is the composite of what is the world. Don't love the world. Now, worldliness, and let's move here, and this is where we finish out. Worldliness has many manifestations, and I labored over this. I have, I have probably a good list here of at least 20 different ways. Then I thought, well, let's just narrow it down, and it came to me. I won't tell you it came to me. It was in a providential way that, that it did come, and it was this, that I thought of, well, is there a church in the New Testament that... Uh, is known for its worldliness. I thought, well, one is, and we happen to be on a street that carries that name, Corinth Road. Hmm, hmm, interesting. The Corinthian church, and it dawned on me. All right, I can call out things easily enough that would describe a system of organized system of unbelief to which we could be attractive and go to and be conformed to. Be value in that. 
But I thought what we would do is just sort of uh, let's go through quickly. We can't cover the entire book of 1 Corinthians, but there are three or four places we can go. So the Corinthian church is a manifestation of worldliness. Paul says that right up front. He said, you're fleshly. Chapter 2, 3. He told them they were. Well, fleshly, you're like the world. He even says that. You're behaving like unbelievers. Whoa, that ought to put us on full alert. What's going on in the Corinthian church? What does it mean to love the world? Now, we can call this systemic worldliness. Oh, we're familiar with that language, aren't we? Systemic? Systemic worldliness. A church can get that far down the line. This is what is affecting and threatening our church today, any church, and the church by and large in America. This world, this system of rebellion and pride that seeks to displace God in his rule. How could a church be that way? Read 1 Corinthians. So it's this system, this systemic race, uh, sorry to say systemic racism, I'm coming to that, it's already on my mind. What is this of which he speaks? Well, let's just consider the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. What's worldliness? They were divided every which way. There was a potential congregation, the first church of Paul, the first church of Peter, the first church of Jesus. Oh, the pious ones. I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. Oh, we mustn't forget about Apollos. They had found their certain teachers that sort of rang their bell and really clicked with them. If the problem was not in Peter and Paul and Apollos, and obviously not in Jesus, but the values which, with which they were bringing to these affections and loyalties of theirs. And they were infighting. It was a, it was a fight in the cafeteria. Actually, it really was. It was that fight of all the, the communion table suffered because of this. So there was a false concept of the gospel. It's in that place where Paul says, this, the wisdom of the world, there is to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, namely the cross, to, and to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. See, that's the world, the way the world, the way the world sets up its values. And he told the Corinthians, what is going on among you? This is the height of carnality that you would go after a certain individual by what they're saying or what you think they're saying or what you want to read into what they're saying and make your, that become your loyalty. Spiritual babyhood. That's what he tells the Corinthians. You're still in the cradle row. And so, hasty judgment of others. The sin of jumping to conclusions. All this kind of thing. That you can't get along with one another. That's worldliness. And then they had their disorders. You look in chapters 5 and 6, they were in, in indifference to sin. Actually, they took it as a point of pride that they had someone in the church who was living in an incestuous relationship. Apparently, this was, man was living with his mother-in-law. Many think that's the way it had, been, it had worked out. But the church, they were, they were intoxicated on the culture. Because the Greek culture for sexuality was something that was to be explored and to be experienced. It was just like being hungry for a good meal or a good steak. You just satisfy it any way you want to. It's, it's all yours. The body doesn't make any difference. And Paul looked at the church. What are you thinking? 
Here's another example of worldliness. When you're willing to look the other way at immorality, and you're able, and you're, you're wanting to give it some kind of uh, an unspoken or unexpressed applause by approving it and not doing anything about it, untouched by it. Well, we won't go into the fact that they were in lawsuits and negligence of immorality and dealing with immorality. And then in chapter 7, chapter 7, what does he go after? Marriage. Marriage. And he says that, listen, loyalty to one another in marriage. Hold the marriage together. And then he goes along to the point where you are in a marriage, and it happens, where you may be married to an unbeliever. For whatever reasons you have, he doesn't go into how that could have happened, but it does. And you end up married to an unbeliever. And that unbeliever doesn't want to stay with you any longer. Doesn't want to be married. Well, he said, you believers, you, you work for peace. Try to hold it together. Hold it together. But if they leave, he said, you're free. I think he means they're free for remarriage. But that's one of the two grounds for divorce in the New Testament. Not to command for, but grounds for. The first would be fornication, would be unfaithfulness, sexual unfaithfulness in marriage. And the other would be if an unbeliever leaves a believer. Those are the two grounds. Now, Christians are not even agreed on those. Some say it's just one. Some say it's none. There are no grounds. Now, my pastor where I grew up, uh, in the church I grew up, he didn't think there were any grounds for divorce whatsoever. And, but that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. That part, part of the worldliness would have been to have thrown that, that, uh, that standard overboard for what would be more convenient for yourself. That's worldliness. And now we come to the one in which I want to conclude on. And that is the problem that comes up in, verse, in chapter 15. I'm going to use a word here that you may not be familiar with. I'm sure I'm not the first one to use this. I've read it in other places. It's what I call the th problem of theological middleism. Middleism. Get that down. I want to explain it. Here's what I mean by theological middleism. Probably the best way to do it, I'll give you two examples. Example number one, with regard to Bible and, the, and science. Oh my, we've been awash in that for the last few three years. Believe the science! And then, <laughs> a little bit, some of us been a little shaken. You mean, that's the science that we're to believe? Well, that's another kind of story. But here's what I mean by this middleism, theological middleism. Oh, oh, I should tell you what the Corinthians were doing. I mustn't, mustn't miss that. Here's what was happening. You know the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul goes to great length, lengths to defend what? Bodily resurrection. Because the Greek culture, get this, the Greek culture, this is the way Aristotle, Socrates, the great thinkers in Greek, in the 300s, in the golden age of Greek history, they thought this way about material things, that the material things, the body, it was evil. And that within we have a soul. It's like a canary in a cage, though. And it's to be released from the body, its prison house, but in the meantime, it's caged up. And it really, that view went off in two directions. In one direction, it was, well, you can just uh, do anything you want to, and it doesn't make any difference because you're not answerable for the body. You're only answerable for what's inside the soul, the immaterial. 
And the other extreme was to then begin to abuse the body and its appetites and so start, start denying certain fulfillment of appetites like asceticism and so forth or celibacy for the, for the so-called priesthood. So it went off in another direction. So here they were, the Corinthians. Stay with me. The Corinthian church, they were infatuated with this idea that you don't have bodily resurrection because that was abhorrent. You remember Paul at Athens, don't you? When he began to preach the resurrection and they just went, oh, what resurrection, what foolishness. Well, here the Corinthians were. They bought into the culture, bought into it, and therefore they were denying, in essence, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul goes there. He says, look at what you are doing. Look at the, this is not a non sequitur here. No, you deny bodily resurrection, you're denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't have anything. Eat, drink, be merry, from the bar we die. It's nothing. All right, that's where the Corinthians were. They were worldly. Now, what is this? I call it middleism. You know why I call it middleism? It's because here you have Christians thinking with, uh, here's the, they want to, as our I've read recently, it's sort of like punch right and cozy left. That is, they want to knock in the head those who have been known as fundamentalists in maybe one's own fundamentalist background. So you make constant derogatory comments about it and criticize them, but you're coming over here because you would like to look good to the current philosophy that sits at the head of the table, the current worldview that's dominating thought in our, in our land. And so you want to be thought a little bit better of. You want to be asked to sit at the adult, at the child's table at least. And uh, so that, that wanting the applause. So this middleism. So we have this movement coming to the middle, coming to the middle. I'll say this. Tr listen, truth is not found in going to the middle. It's found in the Bible. And in the Bible. So simply because someone said, well, I just thought the extremes. I'm going to go to the middle. All right, that's what I, all that from middleism. But now, Bible and science. The belief that the theologian is the God-appointed interpreter of Scripture and that the scientist is the God-appointed interpreter of nature. My mentor, Dr. Whitcomb, called this the double revelation theory. Here, I'll just give you an example of it. Do not have time to unpack all of it? I'll give you an example of it. Here, here's it. I will quote. I view, this writer says, I view the opening chapters of Genesis as a poetic expression of the God-inspired author of that book. I believe that this part of Scripture should not be regarded as a scientific textbook. Should not a Christian be permitted to use science to delve into the unsolved mysteries of creation? Ah, you hear this. This is the way it goes. You begin to read a book on the Bible, and you know what's sad is some of the study Bibles do this. I can tell you, but I don't want to get you distracted. And I've got them marked because I've got about six, seven different study Bibles. And they start out this way, giving kudos to scientism and say, well, okay, now we got to be careful with it. Why not go to the, what's called the prima facie view of the text, what the text says. 
day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven. Oh, but we must see that as poetry. We must see that as speaking of millions and millions of years. Ah, now, do you see out there, you see culture, you see those who are telling us what science is. Do you, is there room for us at the table? Do you see, we've got room, we've got a Bible, it's elastic enough to accommodate. That's what I call middleism. All right, I can't stay there. I've got to go to the one that's a little bit more controversial. And I have to precede it with some very important statements, very important statements. Um, I'll make these first, then I'll give you the word. That um, this is an important weekend. Martin Luther King, Jr., was assassinated. He was born. This is his birthday. He'd been 94 years of age. Assassinated. And Martin Luther King, if you've read his biography, and I, re I, re I encourage you to read a good one. Uh, Stephen Oates has, I think it's the Trumpet Sounds, I think's the name. I've got it over here if anyone's interested in knowing more about it. Martin Luther King Jr. put himself at high risk. It was a vicious hard, evil time. Jim Crow was deeply embedded. Segregation had a chokehold, not only in the South, but in urban areas in the North as well. It was suffocating. I have a, de I have a dear friend. You've seen him here. He comes in on Ferris Rushing. You've seen the, the black gentleman. He sits up here in the front. He comes in from, he just called me yesterday. He was one of my students at Carver many years ago. And I was looking through some, uh, my journal and just going over, I talked with him at length about what he had had to overcome. But he's not, he was not a resentful, bitter, edgy guy. He's, he's, he had some real gifts from God. He was a linguist. He translates the Hebrew into, uh, into English and the Greek. He just loves to do it. It's a hobby. And, uh, but, oh, he told me about the dealing with, uh, systemic racism when he was in high school and he was good in math but he was having a hard time overcoming some of the limitations on what could have been his achievements were his if he had been allowed to go places do things take courses such things he he had to overcome a lot and uh, could go on about his story and what he's had to deal with through the years growing up. I, I know that he mentioned the Emmett Till situation. Emmett Till, who was, uh, it was just brutally murdered, what was it, 1954, I think it was. He'd have been my age if he were still living and what he happened to him. These are, it was all, an awful time. I, I state that to say um, what I want to say in just a few minutes. I understand that. And I, by God's grace, I've given my time, much of my, my life, my early, especially in my early days as a teacher and a preacher, to coming alongside the African-American community to teach and to help and train uh, Christian workers. That, that was my concern, real deep concern. And the second thing I would say here is that there are people who today are using language that make many of us very uncomfortable, understandably so like uh, Black Lives Matter, or diversity, equity, inclusion, these kinds of things, and anti-racism, and intersectionality, 
And so there's a new uh, a vocabulary, white supremacy. is a new vocabulary that's come in. It's like a, a, a tsunami in the last four or five years. It really began to come in. I uh, was just reading something recently. Uh, what I think actually ended up kind of killing Urbana, the missionary conference in Urbana, Illinois, and how this thing came in and took hold, this new way of thinking and talking about race. But it's off the point I wanted to make, excuse me. I'm saying there are people who are sensitive to the fact that there is racism, and there are pockets there are pockets of some systemic racism. So we have to be very careful with our language. We have to be careful we don't overreact. We don't go to extremes. And my good friend Tony Evans has written on, on uh, race, uh, uh, what's the title? I got the book over here, uh, Kingdom Race Theology. And it's, it's, he lays it out in a really helpful way. It's a good book. I recommend it. And I understand that there are those who have legitimate concerns with their, are their prejudicial laws still on the books and their communities and things that need attention to. So I'm not ignoring that. These well, well, where are you going? Well, I'll tell you one of the words and the concepts, and I call it mentalism. It has come into the church. It's come into the church just like a flood. It's called wokeism. Are you woke? Are you woke? Wokeism is the belief. It's the belief that calls for its adherence to adopt a worldview. It's a worldview commitment that erases the creator-creature distinction by placing self as the definer of what truth is. It breaks people into group identities, blaming all evil on external systems of oppression. Disparity is evidence of discrimination. It also has, it, believe me, it has its own theological scheme system. There is what is called standpoint epistemology. Now, does that blow your hat in the creek? Standpoint epistemology. Well, that's simply this, that if you are a member of a minority, you have access to truth that others would not have, that the majority. And it goes for if you're in the African-American community, if you're a minority there, or it could be other minorities as well. It's, it's, it's spread out to the others. Um, that minority status gives you a unique ability to see truth. Now you see that's slippery. Can you see things that are certainly unique because you've been discriminated against? You've experienced, you've been on the short end of the stick. Well, of course you can. But this is the danger of this, what I call mentalism, is that Christians have become swept away and caught up in this sort of thing. And it's actually another gospel. It's a worldview Trojan horse when you begin to examine it and listen to it. Now, I insert just a um, sidebar here. It, it, because you see things being said and done that you agree with that may kind of align with this, I'm not condemning you. I'm just saying listen and get the biblical, biblical discernment that you need to think through it in how to have legitimate concerns for justice. So, 
this is a Trojan horse. It threatens the unity of the church. It is. It's broken up the church. Churches have, churches either uh, close their doors or then split. It's, it's everywhere. Don't think it's just around here. And the threat can be summarized by the organizational appearance of Black Lives Matter. Because when that first became an organization, I saw Christians. We even had some here. But then you begin to think and look behind what's happening, what's driving it. And the philosophical worldview of Marxism that's at the bed of this. We're putting everybody into oppressor and oppressed categories. That's at the heart of this movement of wokeism. They're the oppressed and they're the oppressors. And so making that distinction. So we're faced with really what's a false gospel. I have to be brief here. We're, we're faced with a false gospel. Salvation is deliverance from oppression. Human guilt is being an oppressor, namely whiteness. You see, I, I'm going a little over time on this, but this is why as Martin Luther King's observance of his birthday in this special time, it's going to come across to you as if these two kinds of this wokeism and Martin Luther King are in the same lane. No, they are not. Where he spoke definitively about you judge a child on the basis of their character, the content of their character, not the color of their skin. This is not the, I'm not talking about that. Actually, Martin Luther King has come in for some vitriolic denunciation from those in this movement. Get that. So, here's where we go. Sin is access to power. To be born again is to become woke. Evangelism, use the emotional hook. You can, there are plenty of emotional hooks that you can get. You can get people feeling guilty and get them in. Privilege is total depravity. Indoctrination involves diversity, inclusion, and equity. Eschatology is the drive to create a perfect world, eliminating injustice, racism, social uh, injustice. And so social justice becomes scripture in this movement. Opposition and pushback pays a heavy price. And you're seeing this, and I conclude with this. We're seeing the, 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 the capturing of thought and way of life in our nation, and Christians are paying a price, whether it's in job applications, or it just may be your business, your small business. If you don't say the right words, if you're guilty of what is called maybe a microaggression, you're deemed a racist at the drop of a hat, and you're cooked, you're done. And school teachers, Christian school teachers, are facing this in their classrooms where you have a curriculum that's coming in and asking for a complete reversal and time spent in how young people are to think about themselves. I'll just say it this way, that I think we're in for some very difficult times, more so than what we're seeing now. And it's going to be costing, and it already perhaps has cost some of you something, it's going to cost you more. It may cost you anything where you have to make an application for something or you, whatever door you wish to go through. Get ready, folks. There is a price to pay for staying non-conformed to this world and its thinking as it seeks to shape what you think. There's a price to pay. I read this story recently. I'll take you back to the 15, 1555. Three men, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer, 
and Hugh Latimer. These names are probably unfamiliar to you. But it was in the 1500s that Mary, Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor, she was the daughter of Henry VIII and was a Catherine of Aragon, that she moved the nation of England out of what had been committed to by Edward, her predecessor, from Protestantism into Catholicism. Wanted everyone to sign on. She had at least 200 Protestant pastors killed. Bloody Mary. But there were three that she particularly wanted to get rid of. They were these three. There was Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cranton. And these men, Cranmer, excuse me, uh, Thomas Cranmer, that she had the first two brought in to her church, the courtyard, and she wanted them burned. And she got away, and they set up, they set up the, the, for the fire and put the post up and the chains. And that's interesting because uh, it was uh, Hugh Latimer had been a preacher in the court, and he preached the gospel to Henry VIII. <clears throat> and Nicholas Ridley, he had been the, uh, the Archbishop of London. So, I mean, these were not lesser knowns, but they were Protestant and signed on to Protestant doctrines. And Mary Tudor would have none of it. It's Catholic doctrines or your life. So they were put in a place to be burned at the stake. It was an interesting outcome in that pro at that point because as, as Ridley and Latimer were chained to the stake, the flames, the candle was put into the flames. Here is what uh, really Thomas Ridley said this or excuse me, Latimer said this to Ridley, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And they were burned, burned, painfully so, but unwilling to recant, kept their allegiance to Christ and the doctrines of Scripture. But Mary Tudor was not through. Cranmer saw it. Thomas Cranmer saw it. He had actually recanted of his Protestant beliefs and said he was signing on to Catholic beliefs. So it looked like he was going to dodge this martyrdom. But she was determined to burn him as well. She had, hell hath no fury like a Catholic queen's desire for revenge. And she came after him and they took him and put him in the courtyard, attached to chain to the stake. And as he was being burned, now by the way, he was no lesser light. Some of you are familiar with the Episcopal of uh, the Book of Common Prayer. He wrote it. <laughs> and he had recanted, but in the fire, he came back and said, he recanted of his recantation. I recant. I am a believer in these Protestant doctrines, not the Catholic doctrines. And he had signed it. And so as the flames came up around him, he took his hand and had signed that uh, recantation and he stuck it in the fire so that it would char and burn before anything other part of his body. And he said this, For as much as my hand offended in writing contrary to my heart, Therefore, my hand shall be puni first punished. 
For if they come to the fire, it shall be first burned. And so he gave his life for that. Now, I don't know that we're going to be burned at stakes, but I will tell you this. When you take a pledge to be committed to Christ and to his word and following him and to biblical truth, there will be a price to pay. Are you ready to pay that price, whether it's in school, at work, or wherever it is? Let's pray. Oh, our dear God, thank you for your mercies to us. We've been spared some things, but you will not necessarily spare us from the worst of things. We know that. I cannot name them now, but there are people who are undergoing great, great suffering and difficulties because of their refusal to go along with what is the common view in the office or at school or among the teachers or wherever in the neighborhood. Oh God, we give us a renewed commitment to not be conformed to this world, but to be loyalty to Jesus, loyal to Jesus Christ. Father, and I pray that if there is one man or woman, boy or girl in this audience, that has never put his or her faith in Jesus Christ, uh, before they step off the precipice into eternity, may they cry out to you as that needy sinner of your forgiveness and come and put trust in Christ and him alone. And his righteousness is that righteousness which you receive and accept. Oh, may they do that this day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.